I love being with you guys. I love that we get to serve the Lord together, doing church together, being the family of God together, going through God's Word together. It is such a privilege and such a joy. And I am so grateful for this church. You guys have loved me and my wife and my daughters so, so well. And I just want to say thank you. If I look a little smarter this week than I did last week, it's because I finished my class on Thursday at Talbot Seminary. Yep, thank you. One more class down, one less brain cell available. I love to learn. I'm not the best student, but I do love to learn. Let me open up with this story. We're in the book of Galatians, by the way, so if you want to turn there, you can, but you don't need to now. Has anybody heard of a gentleman named H.A. Ironside? H.A. Ironside? Born in 1876, he passed away in 1951. He was a a Canadian-American Bible teacher, preacher, theologian, pastor, and author. And he says this, he says, While presenting the gospel on the streets of a California city, we were often interrupted uh, this way by people. They would say, Look here, sir, there are hundreds of religions in this country, and the followers of each think that theirs is the only right one. How can poor, plain men like us find out what really is the true one or true religion? And we generally replied something like this. Hundreds of religions, you say? That's strange. I've heard of only two. Oh, but you surely know that there are more than that. Not at all, sir. I find, I admit, that there are many shades of differences in the opinions of those Uh, two great schools, but after all, there are but two. One covers all who expect salvation by doing. And the other school is all who have been saved by something being done. You get the difference? You see, he says, the whole question is very simple. Can you save yourself or must you be saved by another? If you can be your own Savior, you do not need to hear from me. But if you cannot be your own Savior, savior you may do well by listening. Isn't that a great word? Powerful. Turn to Galatians chapter 2 if you haven't already done so. Galatians 2, we're in verses 11 through 21 as we wrap up this chapter. Now if you guys remember, the whole book of Galatians is about um, being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's enough. That's everything as opposed to being justified by works, that we have to do something to get to heaven, as opposed to putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who did something for us. And so that's what Paul is fighting with the Galatian churches, is he's fighting for truth. He's fighting for the gospel message that we are justified by faith in Christ. So join with me in verse 11 of chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of circumcision, of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews then joined with Peter in his hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas, who's co-pastoring essentially this church in Antioch with Paul, even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all the rest of these Jews, if you, Peter, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, 
how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? What a, what a great riddle. Verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but is justified through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not be justified by the works of the law. Why? Since the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? Oh, may it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. You and I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So as we've mentioned, and I will probably continue to mention, these false teachers, these Judaizers, set out to destroy both the message and the messenger, Paul and his gospel message, which the Lord had given to him. And so if you remember from chapter 1, Paul proves his apostleship and the gospel that was given to him came from God. That's what chapter 1 is about, that his gospel and his apostleship came from God and not from man. And so essentially, if you want to think about this or write this word down, chapter 1, we see that Paul has been called. Paul has been called in chapter 1. And then last week in verses 1 through 10, Paul's apostleship and gospel are validated by the leaders in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council of 49 AD. And so essentially in chapter 2, 1 through 10, his gospel and his apostleship are confirmed. So he was called in chapter 1, and then in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, that call is confirmed in Paul. And then in today's verses, 11 through 21, Paul goes back to work. He leaves the Jerusalem Council. He heads back to his job, his work, his ministry in Antioch. And then he experiences some opposition. And so we see in these verses that Paul is being confronted. And so he's called in chapter 1. That call is confirmed in verses 1 through 10. And then he has confrontation in verses 11 through 21. And I think on some level that that's the pattern for many of us, if not all of us, in our Christian walk. Because the enemy doesn't like it when we're called. And that call is confirmed. And so then the enemy confronts to try to destroy that call and to destroy that confirmation. Let me show you what we're talking about because it happened to Jesus as well. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Turn to Mark chapter 1. A little to your left. Verses 9 through 13. Verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan because God had called him to be the Messiah when he was to be baptized. So he was called. In verse 10 it says, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon him. 
And a voice, God's voice, came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And so that call is confirmed. So he's called in verse 9, and he's confirmed. That calling is confirmed in verses 10 and 11. And then look what happens in 12. Here comes the confrontation. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go to the wilderness, and there, 40 days, he was being tempted by Satan. (laughs) And he was with wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. The enemy's for real. And so when God calls us and we say yes to that call, then he'll confirm that call within us while expect some confrontation. Take joy. That's perfect. That's good. It means you're right where you need to be. Let's pray. Lord, we are incredibly grateful for your word that leads us and guides us into all truth. Lord, that we indeed are justified by faith and not by works, but we are justified by the work and only the work of your Son on our behalf the perfect sacrifice that we could never offer up to you. So Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So here's our outline for today. The first four verses, uh, condemnation. It says in verse 11 that Peter stood condemned. Harsh words, right? We'll only stand condemned if we're not walking according to truth, which is what he says in verse 14, because you're not walking straight forward according to the truth. And then verses 15 through 21, understanding at the core of who we are is this doctrine called justification by faith. That we are saved. We are justified. We are declared righteous because of what God has done for us as exhibited through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend a lot of time on understanding justification by faith. Alright? So, let's reread verses 11 through 14 in Galatians uh, chapter 2. Verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. So Cephas comes to Antioch, and and Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was condemned. He stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from Jerusalem, from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But then they come, and he begins to withdraw from them, fearing the party of the circumcision. And then the rest of the Jews join him in this hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas, Paul's partner, was carried away by their hypocrisy. And Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, then he confronted Peter or Cephas in the presence of all. And he said, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how do you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Would you agree that these four verses look and feel intense? It's because they're meant to. They're intense verses. Listen to some of these things. We just read them in verse 11. He says, I opposed him to his face. Hmm. Verse 11 also says that he stood condemned. Verse 12 says that he was aloof. Peter was aloof, which means not involved with or friendly towards people. Imagine if I was aloof towards you. Not kind. He was fearful because it says in verse 12 that he feared the party of the circumcision. Essentially, he's calling him a coward on some level. You did things because you were afraid. In verse 13, he says that Jews joined him in hypocrisy. In verse 13, it says even Barnabas was carried away in hypocrisy. And in verse 14, he says that they, the Jews and and Peter, were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, which means that they were crooked or not upright. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Does the intensity and passion of Scripture make you uneasy at times? Sure. It's okay. It's hard. Wrestling with truth sometimes is difficult. To look at ourselves and say, wow, am I right in this area? If it doesn't, then let me ask you this. What are you intense and passionate about, if not God's Word, if not pleasing?
If you're not intense and passionate about God's word and pleasing him, what are you intense and what are you passionate about? Gosh, I hope it's the right things. Truth. The gospel given to us is truth that transforms lives. Your life and my life. Raise your hand if you've been transformed by the word of God. Raise your hand if you're still being transformed by the word of God. We should be passionate about things that transform our lives. There's not a lot that's entered into my life over the 52 years that I've been around that's transformed my life. But certainly, God's Word has. These verses look and feel intense for some very legitimate reasons. To eat with Gentiles, in verse 12, meant to accept them. Because Jews and Gentiles were one in Christ. They were on equal footing because everybody, all of mankind, was and is in need of a Savior. And I I, I just think that it's a daily temptation that we must often endure. Listen to this. Believing the lie that we are not on the exact same level as everyone else. One of two things. We either think we're better than, than another, or we think that others are better than us. And that's a lie. None of us are better than another. None of us are worse than another. We are all equally in need of the salvation only found and offered up through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can't do anything for that. No one's better than you. No one's worse than you. You're not better than anyone or worse than anyone. We're all on equal footing before the Lord. And so Peter was in jeopardy of compromising that. Or he was compromising that. He wasn't even in jeopardy. He was compromising that truth. Let's explore why... Paul had legitimate reasons to be firm and intense with Peter. Turn to Mark chapter 7. Peter had learned this lesson that Paul's talking to him about in Galatians 2. Peter had learned this. Who do you think he learned it first from? If we're turning to Mark, who do you think he learned it from? Jesus. To Mark chapter 7. Peter should have known this lesson because Jesus taught it directly. 7 starting at 14. He called the crowd listen to me and understand there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man if you have ears hear verse 17 when he left the disciples said explain it and he said to them in verse 18 are you so lacking in understanding also do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside food unclean foods etc that can't defile us but it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. Or because it doesn't go into his heart, but his stomach. And it's eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Jesus told, taught Peter directly. There's no difference between you and a Gentile. You're both in need of me. So Jesus teaches Peter that lesson directly. Well, guess who also taught it to him? Turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. If you know anything about Acts, that means it's probably the Holy Spirit who who taught him, which is exactly what it is. Learn to Acts chapter 10. The same lesson that Jesus taught him, now the Holy Spirit's going to teach Peter. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9. 9 through 15. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop to, to, to pray at the sixth hour, and he became hungry. He wanted to eat, but they were making preparations below, and he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky open up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by the four corners to the ground, 
And there were all kinds of four-footed animals and creatures and, uh, of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice said, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter said, Oh, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. All right, so he learns it directly from Jesus, and now he learns it directly from the Holy Spirit. Check this out. Turn Peter also... Um, proclaims this truth at the Jerusalem Council. Turn a few chapters over to Acts chapter 15. This is the the trifecta, if you will. So in Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 6, Peter himself declares this truth that Jesus taught him, that the Holy Spirit reminded him of. He declares it in Acts 15, starting in verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together at the Jerusalem Council to discuss these things about Jews and Gentiles. And after there had been much debate, Peter stands up and says, Brothers, you know that God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and that they would believe. And God knows. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, we cannot achieve salvation through works. Verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of Jesus in the same way as the Gentiles. Sometimes I've heard, or often I've heard, um, things like this. Either I've said it, or I've heard it from people, and you probably have too. I just wish the Lord would tell me what to do. I just wish God would tell me what to do. Well, he told Peter. Jesus told Peter. The Holy Spirit told Peter. Peter confessed it at the Jerusalem Council, and then Peter didn't do it. That is so unlike us, isn't it? I've never done that myself. I don't know about you guys. It's kind of weird, right? And God's like, really? I just wish, God God would just tell me what to do. He has told us so many things to do. We need to wrestle with that. Good lesson for us. Check out the start and the the finish. Go back into Galatians 2. The the start and the finish of our uh, stanza, verse 11 to 14. Yeah, so that's the stanza, 11 to 14. So the start is verse 11 and the end is verse 14. What, what Paul, what he's saying is this. I'm going to re, reword verse 11 a little bit with using the same words. So 11 can be, but because he stood condemned. So I jump to the end of that, right? But because he stood condemned, then I opposed him. Okay, so there's a, there's a because in there. There's a reason. Because he stood condemned. And verse 14 is essentially the same way. But because they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. There's reasons for why Paul is confronting Peter. But because he was condemned, and but because you were not walking straight forward about the truth of the gospel, then he opposed him, and he spoke to him in front of all. And so as we see from those three examples of Peter uh, being taught by Jesus, Peter being taught by the Holy Spirit, and Peter himself teaching at the Jerusalem Council about Jews and Gentiles being on the same footing, that means, and what we see here, because you stood condemned and because you were not walking straight forward, it means that Peter knew. Peter knew exactly what Paul was calling him out on. He knew. 
they were guilty. Peter and these other Jews were guilty because they were not walking in line with the truth. And that word in verse 14, straight, not, that they were not straightforward, is orthopodeo, right? Like an orthopedic surgeon or ortho, right? Is that ortho, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say, with all, all those words, those, those fancy terms with ortho in it, right? It means to walk straight. It means to walk uprightly. The, the, the opposite would be to, to walk crooked to not walk upright. They're not an upright person. They're a crooked person. Why, though? Why is this happening in our chapter or in our verses for today? Why is Peter not walking straight? Why is he standing condemned? It's in verse 12. Does anybody know? Somebody said it. Fear. Look in verse 12. Prior to these people coming from Jerusalem, he used to eat, and they began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Fear. At the center of all this intensity, at the center of all this chaos and condemnation and confrontation, is fear. Hmm. Check out Proverbs 29. We've got to be so careful with what we fear. It's a snare to us. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare, church. If we fear man and we don't fear God instead, it brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Do you guys know this saying? Oh, that thing happened and there was no rhyme or reason. Do you believe that? I get it. It's cute absolutely untrue. It's a bunch of hogwash. There's a rhyme and reason for everything. There's a rhyme and reason for everything and results that come because of it. Even verse 13 says as much, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away. There's a rhyme and a reason for everything that happens. It's, I, I, I don't know what else to call them, but we hear that people, oh, I got in an accident. Right? Think about it. It didn't just happen. There's a reason that somebody got in an accident. But I just think we just don't know what else to call it, right? I got into a purposeful collision. That just doesn't quite roll off the tongue, right? I got into an accident. It was nobody's fault. There's, there's a reason that we may have been in an accident. And so it's all the more reason to be cautious and wise in how we walk with the Lord. Because there's a rhyme and reason everything. And so fear was the rhyme and reason. That was the reason that these nasty things were happening in these four verses. Because Peter was living out of fear. And I can only imagine over the years, just in this room, the number and type of decisions that we have made or have not made based on fear. It's probably a long list, isn't it? still working that through me. What do we fear? What do we fear? Fear changes behavior. Fear changes behavior. So let's be sure we fear the correct things. Amen? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31, fifth book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31. All 
through Scripture, all through Scripture, we're encouraged to fear our Lord, to have a reverential fear of our God. 31, starting in verse 11. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, I mean, imagine this, right? When all of Israel comes to appear before the Lord at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. That must have been incredible to see. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the who and the alien, the Gentile who was in your town so that they may hear and learn and do what? Fear the Lord your God and be careful from that fear to observe all the words of his law. Their children, the Gentile, the alien's children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Mm. Turn to Proverbs, right after the book of Psalms, Proverbs 1. What are Proverbs? What are Proverbs, church? They're wise sayings so that we can live wisely. The usefulness of Proverbs, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom, these are what they're for, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive and to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Verse 7. The fear of our God is the beginning of this knowledge and wisdom because fools despise wisdom and instruction. Perhaps, listen to this, perhaps many Christians are more aware and sensitive to what it means to fear man than what it means to fear the Lord. And that's not a good place. It's a foolish place. But we don't fear the Lord. But we fear man instead. Go back to Galatians 2. So what's the outcome? What's the outcome of Peter's fear, of not walking straight forward in the truth? What's the outcome? There's three of them. If you want to write this down, they're not on the screen. The first one is bad behavior. The first outcome of living and walking in fear is bad behavior. The second one is bad influence. Bad behavior is number one. Bad influence is number two. And the third one is bad results. When we walk in fear, not fearing the Lord, we have bad behavior, bad influence, and bad results. Check out verse 12. I hope you see what I want you to see when I do this. When we're talking about bad behavior, because of fear, this is what happens in verse 12. I'm going to give you three, three-word things to look at. The first three words, for prior to. For prior to this fear, if you will, right? For prior to, and then a couple words later, he used to, and a couple words later, he began to. For prior to, you used to, but then you began to because of fear. When we're not walking uprightly and something else is driving and motivating us, it changes our behavior from bad, from good to bad. Because it says, for prior to, blah, 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 he used to, blah, 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 but then he began to. If we're not careful, it 
changes our behavior. Second one, bad influence. You can see it in verse 13. The rest of the Jews joined Peter in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. It infected a church. His hypocrisy affected a church. And then lastly, the third one is bad results. Well, we see the hypocrisy, which we already mentioned. That's bad. And then look in verse 12, and it says at the end that Peter began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. And in the beginning of 13, and the rest of the Jews joined him. And so it broke fellowship in the church because they weren't walking straight forward. And so then there was a, a disunity. Wherever there's disunity, that's not of the Lord. So, bad behavior, bad influence, and bad results. And finally, let's look at some of the healthy dynamics of this confrontation. Two things. Paul stayed, listen, Paul stayed focused. Paul stayed focused on objective truth, not subjective taste. Paul, in this confrontation, he stayed focused on objective truth, not subjective taste, which works its way into a lot of weird ways in the church, outside the church, but just really dealing with the truth of the matter. Objective truth, not subjective taste. And then the second thing is, Paul went directly to the guilty party. Paul went directly to the guilty party. It's a lost art in in, in Christianity on some level. We we tend not to go to the guilty party. He opposed him to his face, it says in, in verse 11, and then he said to Cephas in the presence of all in verse 14. And so we can't stop at that first step. We can't uh, get really good at recognizing when someone's not walking according to the truth and stop there. Oh, they're not walking according to the truth. Well, 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 we start whispering and talking to other people, right? We'll become just as guilty as they are if we don't execute properly and talk to these people directly. It's a hard thing to do. Anybody here like confrontation? Most people don't. But confrontation, that word actually means to turn your face towards somebody. It means to turn your face towards them in love. And and so that's what Paul's doing. In love, he's turning his face towards his brother to recreate unity. It's beautiful. Let me ask you this. How are you living your life today in Christ? Are you walking uprightly and straightly in Christ-likeness? How are you living your life today? Are you walking straightly and uprightly in Christ-likeness? Or perhaps like Peter, you're living in fear. You have some level of fear that's driving you somewhere in your life. And this fear might actually be causing you to live hypocritically at times. Good word for us. Good challenge for us. Our second stanza, verses 15 through 21, justification. Let's go there. Verses uh, 15 through 21. Let's plow through those real quick. We are Jews, in verse 15, we are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ... We have believed in Christ that we may be justified by faith, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no one can be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
So he concludes and says, I do not nullify the grace of God. No way. For if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for no reason. can't imagine that being true. So here, in these verses, we're introduced to an extremely important doctrine called justification by faith. This is more than likely the first appearance of this word, justification, in all of Paul's writings because Galatians is thought to be the first of Paul's 13 New Testament letters. So important is this doctrine of justification by faith that we also find it in the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews. Justification by faith was the backbone of the Protestant Reformation of the 15 and 1600s. That sounds all good and fine, but what is it? (laughs) What is it? What does it mean to be justified by faith? What a great definition. It's the act. It's the act of who? It's the act of God. It's the act of God, whereby he declares believing who? Sinners. He declares a believing sinner that they are righteous in Jesus Christ. What's God's portion? He declares us through Christ. And who are we in this picture? That word sinner. That's what we are. He declares us. It's an act where God declares us righteous in Christ Jesus. Justification is an act. It's not a process. No Christian in here or anywhere else is more justified than another Christian. Can I get an amen for that? Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, this is like a concluding word, right? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we all have peace with God through Christ. The literal translation reads something like this. It's just a little different. Having therefore been once and for all justified by faith, you and I can be at peace with God. It is an instant and immediate transaction between the believing sinner and God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. If we are justified by works, then it would have to be a gradual process. So then, let me ask you this. Who needs to be justified by faith and who doesn't? (laughs) Check out verse 15 in the first part of 16. We are Jews by nature. We're not sinners from among the Gentiles. I'll explain that in a second. It's not as bad as it sounds. We're Jews. They're Gentiles. Nonetheless, nevertheless, knowing that a man, whether he's Jew or Gentile, is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, we have in referring in that verse, in referring verse 15, in referring to Gentiles as sinners, Paul is not using the term in a behavioral sense. He's using it in a legal descriptive sense. To most Jews, Gentiles were also referred to as sinners because they had no law to guide them in how to live and how to please God. So it was just more of a descriptive term, not a behavioral term. And so verses 15 and the first part of 16 could read something like this. We're sinful Jews by nature, and we're not sinful Gentiles by nature, but either way, it don't matter because we know that neither of us can be justified by works, and we all have to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Understanding this justification by faith is a concept that ties in with justification by faith, something called Uh, double imputation. Are you guys familiar with double imputation? Okay. It's really cool. So pull up that verse in Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, sinless, 
to be sin on our behalf. That means all of our sin, all of yours in this section, and all of yours in this section, and all of me in this section, all of our sin has been imputed, it's been put on Christ. All of it. That's what it says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we, all of this section, all of this section, and all of this section up here, so that we might become the righteousness of God because of what Christ did for us. So we impute all of our ugly stuff on Him and we take on the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. That's justification by faith. Oh, this gives me goosebumps, man. Who does that? Our Lord does that. Let me introduce something else that you might not be familiar with. Because when I see them, I just get really excited. Anybody know what a chiasm is in Scripture? A chiasm? Raise your hand. Chiasm? A chiastic structure? Okay. This is really cool. The use of a, a, a chiasm is C-H-I-A-S-M. A chiasm is a writing style. The Lord is so incredibly creative. It's a writing style that uses a unique repetition pattern for clarification or emphasis. It appears all throughout the Bible. There are chunks, chunks of Scripture that are in chiastic structure. There are paragraphs and there are verses. It's, it's amazing. And it's all through Scripture. And it really helps you enhance what God is trying to say to us. Let me give you a sample, and then I'll show you in our verses for today. This is out of Matthew 6.24. This is a chiasm. A matches A prime with a little swiggly line over the A, right? A matches A, B matches B, and then in the center is usually the main point of what the author is saying or what God wants us to hear. So, right? No one can serve two masters is A. A prime says you cannot serve God in wealth. Then you have B either he will hate the one and then be prime and despise the other. Same thing. And then the center of all that is who you love. Who do you love and who are you devoted to? Who do you love and who are you devoted to? Because you're going to despise one and you're going to love the other because you can't serve God in wealth. You can't fear man and you can't fear God. You're going to love one and despise the other. And it really helps you understand in a, in a chiasm what's taking place here. So we have that in our verse uh, Galatians 2.16. The whole justification by faith is... Um, Galatians 2.16. Go ahead and show that one. We got it? Perfect. This is what Galatians 2.16 says. This is our justification by faith. A man is not justified by the works of the law. That's A. A prime, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. And then you got B, but justified through faith in Christ Jesus. B prime, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. And so the center of all that is, then we, have, we need to believe in Jesus Christ. Even we, all of us then, must believe in Jesus Christ because we are not justified by works or the law. We're only justified by Christ. Isn't that cool? I just didn't know if you guys see those when you read, but when you do, you'll, you'll probably start to recognize them. Now, I hope you do when you go through God's Word. It really helps us understand exactly what God wants us to hone in on. And He created a chiastic structure. All right, as we wrap this up, verses 17 and 18. Let me just read those real quick. If while seeking to be justified in Christ, we have also been found sinners, is Christ a minister of sin? May it never be. What does that mean? For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Here's what it means. If the Judaizers were correct, that believers are saved by putting faith in Jesus and works, the law of Moses, then even before these people arrived in Antioch, 
Peter and Barnabas and all the other Jewish believers, including Paul, would have fallen back into the category of sinner by eating with and being with Gentile Christians. So that's what he's saying in verse 17. If, while, if I'm trying to be justified, but then you're telling me I'm a sinner, then that means Christ must be a minister of sin. Because who did Christ hang out with? Uh, people like you and me. May it never be. Just further evidence that we are saved by faith in Christ and not by works. Otherwise, Christ would be guilty of sin. And then let's just read those last three verses as we close our time. And then I will pray, and then our prayer team is available. After the service over here to my left. Did I mention already that we have service at 3 and 5 on Saturday? I already did that. just wanted to make sure. I just had strict instructions. I didn't want to mess it up. Verse 19, chapter 2. What a great way to end. For through the law, I have died to the law. Because I can't be saved by it, so I'm dead. So that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, because He loved me and gave Himself up for me. He imputed His righteousness upon us. And so he concludes by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, no way. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let me pray.